To the Cincy Reformed Podcast. My name is Zach Wise. I'm here with Brandon Burks. We're co-pastors at Westside Reformed Church, and we're currently going through a bit of a series on some of the ways that Reformed uh, theology and Reformed church life is different than that within the Baptistic uh, traditions. And as I mentioned last time, we just want to clarify that we're just picking out a few places where things are different because we get questions a lot about this topic as to why we do things in a different way, why we think differently about stuff. And so we want to have a place where we can direct uh, people to, to hopefully clarify some of these things for better dialogue, better conversation. Also, just to note for you that one of the reasons we're doing this is because as we look around the city of Cincinnati, we see that there are a lot of people from various uh, branches of the Baptistic tradition. They might not be Southern Baptists or whatever, but they might be just a, an evangelical church of some, of some stripe or maybe from the Christian church or Disciples of Christ. All these kind of fall under the banner of Baptistic. And so there are some things that they certainly differ on, but there are also some pretty clear things where they are in agreement. And so we, we're hoping to kind of identify some of those in order to advance our conversation uh, with them. Today we're going to be talking about the uh, sacraments. And of course, as we do this, there are some differences in the way that the aforementioned um, churches are going to um, specifically address the sacraments within the Southern Baptist Church or a Christian church or whatever. But again, there are some things that unite them. Probably one of the places is whether they want to use the word sacraments or ordinance. Brandon, maybe you want to uh, introduce us here now to more of the the Baptistic view on the sacraments, and then make particularly the sacraments of baptism. Yeah, and like you mentioned, there, there is that debate. Do we use sacrament? Do we use the word ordinance? Um, the word ordinance has the idea that it was ordained by, by God or ordained by Christ for the church to do. It uh, really emphasizes the work of the people. You know, it's, it's, it's our uh, kind of what we do because we were commanded to do this by Christ. And that's kind of the emphasis being brought out by the, the term ordinance. Uh, the term sacrament um, for many Baptists sounds Roman Catholic. Um, and they kind of want to avoid, avoid that. And even within the Baptist tradition, some of the earlier Baptists in the 1600s were very comfortable with uh, using the word sacrament. Uh, in fact, one of the early Baptist uh, catechisms uh, uh, written by Hercules Collins, uh, he, he, he retained the word um, sacrament. And so there were, there were Baptists who were happy to use that language, but then others who, um, who said we should probably try to avoid it. So there, there, there is that, that debate. Uh, in the Baptist faith and message, here's how, here's how they def define baptism. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. 
Now this ties directly in with um, their view of covenants. We talked about that last week. Their view of covenant theology and how there's there's a lot of discontinuity. And so, for example, when they're looking at baptism, they're not going to go back and consider Abraham or consider how sacraments functioned in the old uh, in the Old Testament because they don't see that underlying continuity in the unfolding re- redemptive narrative of of, of Scripture. Um, so they are um, uh, kind of approaching it differently based upon their view of God's covenants. But a couple key things in this text uh, that, they, that they mention, uh, they say immersion of a believer. And those are two big words that they're going to highlight. It has to be immersion, no sprinkling, no pouring. In fact, the, the Baptist catechism, uh, often called Keech's Catechism um, uh, talks about how it, it has to be a, a complete immersion with water, not part of the body. You can't just do do like the torso or something like that. It has to be a full blown immersion in water because they would often say the word baptizo in scripture, uh, the Greek word baptize, baptizo means to immerse. If you look at a lexicon, oftentimes the lexical word there to to immerse and so they would say well it's immersion only and so if you sprinkle or if you pour you don't have baptism no baptism with sprinkling or pouring and then believer so they they, they believe you had to be a professing believer a, a person who has a mature profession that you've had an experience of being born again and you make a public profession of faith and you're baptized based upon your faith in, in Christ, and so that would automatically then exclude children, um, because children, uh, especially newborns, infants, are not capable of making th- this kind of level of mature profession that the Baptists are going to be um, looking for. And you know, they say that this this obedience symbolizes the believer's faith. So this is. Um, an act that the person is doing, symbolizing their their faith. It's it's almost their statement in a way, right? So it's my de- declaration um, to to the world of my faith, my declaration not not only to God but to everybody everybody present that I believe in Christ and it's my public profession of faith. And uh, the the confession goes on to talk about its obedience. It is often described as your first step of obedience. Um, so baptism then is obedience. It's a, it, it, because you have been commanded to do it. It is symbolic of your faith, your testimony, your, your declaration. And it has to be full-blown full immersion. And you have to have made a, a profession of faith. And I will add this too. If uh, you believe that you were baptized perhaps a bit too hastily, and maybe in later years you realize that you were not born again, and you got born again maybe a year or two after your baptism, then you would actually look back and say, I was never baptized. Because in order to have a baptism, two things have to occur. Immersion, believer. If you get rid of, of, of immersion or you get rid of the believer, you get rid of baptism altogether. And so they would uh, oftentimes perhaps then rebaptize, or they would they would argue baptize for the first time, uh, immersion of a of a believer. So Zach, that's kind of the the Baptistic view, um, kind of looking looking here at the uh, the Baptist faith and message, which I think encapsulates a, a lot of other traditions as well. 
not, not just the Southern Baptists, but what is the, the Reformed view? How do, we, how do we differ here? Sure. Well, from the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document that we use, question 74, we have this answer that's given about baptism to help us understand our view. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. So again, here we're noting that this is connected for us with the differences in covenant theology. So they're included as well as adults. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of believer, unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. So one of the key things that is brought out here within this answer from the Heidelberg Catechism is that baptism is being connected with the promise of God to the recipients of baptism rather than the recipient of baptism being on stage. This is my dramatization of my profession of faith. This is my performance for you of what I've done and what I've experienced. No, here the arrow does not go upward from us to God as an act of obedience, but primarily speaking, the arrow goes down from God to us. It's a promise being made. It's a visible promise of the gospel being made to the recipient of, of holy baptism. So we should note there that the baptism for the Reformed is not in the category of law, something that we do in obedience. It's in the category of gospel, something that God is promising to the uh, recipients. And God is setting apart in a liturgical, formal fashion the recipient of baptism from the world. So the child or the adult who's receiving baptism is formally, liturgically set apart from the world within that act, not by the act that the person is performing, but by God acting through his, uh, through his minister. And so again, we see some continuity there with the way that God acted in the Old Testament and now the way that he acts on this side of the cross. So some places where we clearly disagree with the, um, the Baptists is that we, while we are um, perfectly fine with immersion, that is a, an appropriate mode of baptism, we accept the mode of immersion. If somebody comes to our church and they were immersed at some point in the triune name, then we accept that baptism. Um, with some other, you know, categories need to be, boxes need to be ticked as well. A pastor needs to do it and so forth and in the context of the church. But the point being, we're not concerned about the mode per se, because, but we affirm immersion, we affirm sprinkling, we affirm pouring as well. And so that's one place where we disagree with the uh, Baptist approach. Clearly, we include uh, the children of professing believers in this also, because we believe the covenant promises belong to them, not just to their parents. And um, so I guess to highlight here that the uh, that this is primarily within our view of baptism, God toward us. It's promissory. It's received then by the um, uh, parents and their children, and that this is um, an act of grace toward uh, toward God's people. So, Brandon, where are some other uh, ways you'd um, jump in here to help us to understand some differences and different ways that we conceive of this uh, sacrament or ordinance mm -hmm. of baptism? Yeah, I like how you you brought out like the main arrow, God to us. 
Um, it's, it's God's promise. And, and even if you're not the one being baptized, you still see that promise being enacted. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're still seeing this promise um, happening. Almost like when, when Noah came out of the ark and saw the rainbow, that, that, that promise God's not going to flood the earth again. As we see baptism, as we are baptized ourselves, or as we uh, uh, remember that, the fact that we were baptized, um, we there see the promise of God that just as water washes away dirt from our body, so the blood of Christ and the Spirit of God washes away sin. And it's that promise that is, that is um, visibly put on display for us, God's promise to us. And I think that just recalibrates baptism to, almost completely. It's almost like a rewiring of the way we even think about baptism uh, when we understand the primary arrow is God uh, to us. It's what God is doing. It's what God is saying. Uh, it's, it's God's promise. And so I, I think that, that that is key there. Um, Can I jump in really fast on yeah. that? I think one of the places where I've seen this most in our church is that as people are coming out of baptistic backgrounds, they want to make baptism sentimental. Mm. Like it's this experiential kind of a thing mm. rather than objective. Yeah. I think that's maybe what, that's what you're getting at. Maybe there's mm-hmm. different words here mm-hmm. is that there's this objectivity to baptism. of I can look at that act and I can profit from that truly spiritually, not because of a, a feeling I have or a feeling that they're having, but because I know that's God's promise objectively there for me to latch on to. Right. And so it's not about a heartwarming moment so much as it is God acting objectively in our midst. Right. Right. Noah's heart didn't have to be warmed when he saw the rainbow for the rainbow promise to be there. <laughs> no, but our hearts should be warmed, of <laughs> course. Sure. But, you know. <laughs> right. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, keep no, going. Keep no, going. No, that's good. Um, and then also, too, I mean, just to kind of highlight, too, what, what you were talking about with, uh, you know, sprinkling, pouring... You know, one thing that we see in Scripture is baptism symbolizes washing, cleansing. I mean, we see that very clearly in, in, in pouring water. We see that washing act that the Holy Spirit is doing. And so um, I think it symbolizes very well. And, and there's also other evidence and reasons for this, uh, for uh, not using immersion. So, for example, the word baptizo um, is not always used in that way. It's used for washing. It's used, I think, in the... In the um, in the Septuagint, it's used a few times for uh, dipping or, or pouring even. So it can have different usages to say, well, this lexical form in this one dictionary says it's, it's just a kind of a wooden uh, way of understanding language. That's, that's, the, the, the word can have different usages. So it doesn't always mean uh, full-blown immersion every time. And um, the Didache, for example, one of the early... Uh, Christian writings uh, goes back all the way. The earliest that people think it could have been written was eighty fifty. Now this is obviously very early, early on. It's not in the Bible, so I, you know we don't want to give it authority that the Bible has. But it is an interesting insight into the Christian community and how they worshipped. And one of the things the Didache says is that they would um, either immerse or they would pour water, uh, sprinkle, and so that was that was okay um, early on in. in in the church. And um, so I think that uh, by, by demanding immersion, that, you know, that's where, where Baptists kind of, uh, kind of uh, distinguish themselves from the Reformed tradition. And also, in my experience, it can also confuse covenant children. So I can remember back when I was um, a Baptist, I was talking with my oldest son. At the time, he was about five years of age. And 
he wanted to get baptized. He saw someone at church get baptized. You know, it's kind of kind of natural, and so he said, "Well, you know, I want to get baptized too." And that, you know, that's that's exciting. And you know, of course, kind of gave him the Baptist answer. Well, we we have to make sure. Well, we're not sure if you're born again. We're not sure if you really believe. We're not. And you know, we have to kind of see how your life progresses and if you have this experience and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that actually just did damage to him. Um, because about a week later, I was chatting with them. We were reading through the Bible, and uh, we were reading the, the, God, the book of Acts, and I asked him if he believed, and he said, well, I don't know, um, because belief became like an esoteric thing, something that he, he, he thought he believed, he, he thought he had a faith, and you know, when I was talking about you had to believe to be baptized, he said, well, I believe. I want to get baptized, and um, and here I was saying, well, we don't know, and then so it was almost like he was saying, well, I thought I believed. You're saying I don't believe. I don't know what 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 faith is then at that point, point. and then so he he said, well, maybe when I grow up, I'll I'll believe and get baptized, or I'll understand even what that means because you made it so so difficult, and I, I realized at that point, I think I'm doing damage to this covenant child who's in the covenant. Um, and he should receive the sign of God's promise to him, and he should be reassured in his faith that his faith is real, and it is awesome, and it is spirit rod, and all these things. He should be assured of these things and encouraged in these things, and he should have been given the judgment of charity um, rather than given a judgment of skepticism and doubt that really, I think, was starting to creep in. So um, just in my own experience, I think that uh, it can the Baptistic approach can really confuse covenant children who are members of the covenant and are somehow being denied by their parents. I think that's helpful. Well, maybe we should start transitioning now into um, the Lord's Supper. So, yeah. uh, Brian, would you mind introducing us to how the Baptistic tradition tends to view the Lord's Supper? And, and here there are some differences. <clears throat> so there are, there are some in the Baptist uh, tradition who will have more of a Reformed view, a more Calvin view of, of uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, but in the main, you find a more symbolic idea, uh, kind of following after Zwingli in, in the Reformation, who had more of a symbolic view rather than a Calvin, which we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, but the Baptist faith and message, again, I think encapsulates... Uh, largely the kind of Baptistic idea about how, how many view the Lord's Supper. And the Baptist faith and message says, The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. So a couple key words, you know. Here, uh, it's a symbolic act. Uh, so it's 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 memorializing. It, it's it's a memorial symbolizing, kind of bringing our minds back to the cross, bringing our minds back to what Christ has done two thousand years ago, where we kind of where we we are remembering afresh, perhaps that death burial uh, of Christ, Him. Him becoming sin and dying for our sin, our sin being nailed to the cross. We're kind of remembering that afresh. And also pointing to the second coming of Christ. So as we're, we're sitting down with Christ and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in 
in the Baptistic view, as you're taking the Lord's Supper, your mind is going, you know, in two places. You're going past, and then you're going future. You're going past to the cross, future to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what's missing is anything present. Like, there's nothing really, like, happening uh, in the present. It's just a kind of remembering, memorializing of the past, anticipating the future, and it, it, it's an act of obedience again. So here there's this kind of instinct to turn sacraments into law rather than seeing them as a gospel grace, God to us. Baptists are making sacraments um, us to God or us to other people. It, it's, it's, it's what we're doing. It's our act. It's our obedience. Um, it's our remembering, or whatever it is. And so again, this instinct within the Baptistic um, tradition to turn sacraments into law, to see the main arrow in a sacrament as us to God or us to other people, rather than saying God to us. Um, one other thing to note in here, uh, too, is we talked about, about partaking the bread and the fruit of the vine, uh, which is interesting. You know, many uh, in the Baptistic tradition uh, really do not like a wine at all being used. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's grape juice only. And, um, yeah, there was uh, one TV evangelist who said, if you take one sip of wine, you're an alcoholic. And uh, I heard that over and over again, warnings about, you know, if, if, you, if you take the sip, you're an alcoholic, and so you cannot have wine for the Lord's Supper. And so, interesting how they, how they kind of put that in there, lest they uh, <laughs> tread on a conscience or something. So, so Zach, that's kind of how, how the Baptists have, have approached the Lord's Supper. Uh, how do we approach it? What is our view? Well, our, our view, similar critique that we had to the sacrament of baptism, our view here is the different arrow, again, to put it in that simplified way, that for them, the arrow is almost exclusively from us to God, our act of obedience, our act of performance. Um, we are doing the remembering, we are doing the action. And for us, the primary arrow here is from God to, to us. And it's an act of grace, an act of gospel, an act of God working in our midst, Christ working in our midst to care for us. Let me read a few, uh, a little bit here from Belgic Confession, Article 35. And I would encourage you, uh, if you're watching this or listening to this, to find that because it's an amazing article of faith. It's very lengthy, so I'm not going to read the entire thing. But that will give you a very robust view of how we conceive of the Lord's Supper as a very um, spiritual thing that God does within the midst of the church. And again, this is an objective thing that God is doing, or that we're not looking to our own experience as the litmus test as to whether the Lord's Supper is um, uh, worthwhile or not, but that God is objectively moving and working within the context of the Lord's Supper so that we can believe that and, and cling to it. So, the Article 35 begins by referring to the living bread that came down from heaven. And it names that living bread as the person of Jesus Christ, who he, he nourishes and maintains the life, or the, the spiritual life of believers when he's eaten. That is, when appropriated and received spiritually by faith. Okay, so it begins by making that affirmation 
working from John chapter 6, that Christ himself is spiritual bread, and he needs to be eaten by faith. Now, that's just the truth. And we think about that in a general way as we think about the preaching of the gospel, that by faith we are participating in communion with Christ, who is spiritual bread. But then, Belgic 35 then moves into a consideration then of the Lord's Supper in particular. Not just thinking about Christ generically as living bread, but now we think about the Lord's Supper in particular. That this um, reality of Christ is represented to us in the sacrament that Christ has instituted. He has given us an earthly and visible bread as the sacrament of his body, and then wine as the sacrament of his blood. So that generic reality that Christ is this then becomes concretized, realized in our midst in the Lord's Supper. It goes on then to say that we receive the bread and wine, we receive the, um, uh, the body and blood of Christ then by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. So just as you take bread in your hand, just as you drink wine with your mouth, well, we say then that we receive Christ by the hand and mouth of our soul, which is faith. Faith is that hand and mouth of our soul. So there's a connection then between the... Uh, tangible reality, and then the spiritual act of nourishment. Um, one more thing that, uh, two more things I'd like to read here from Belgic 35. It, it affirms that we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body, and what is drunk is his own blood, but the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the Holy Spirit through faith, okay? So again, there's this real present communion with Christ, not just a past thing, not just a future thing, but a vertical thing going on where the arrow is coming from God to us. He's feeding us, but it's not by the earthly mouth, but by faith. The Holy Spirit brings us Jesus Christ. The last part to read from Belgic 35 here says, At the table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death, as he nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor, desolate souls by the eating of his flesh, and relieves and renews them by the drinking of his blood. Again, the manner that we do this is by the Holy Spirit through faith, not by the mouth alone or by the stomach alone or something like that. But God uses those tangible elements to convey something spiritually uh, to us. Brandon, what are some of your thoughts here and maybe some ways that uh, this differs, again, from the Baptistic approach to things? One of the texts that many um, Baptists and Baptist writers have not wrestled with well enough, I don't think, is 1 Corinthians 10.16. Because in 1 Corinthians 10.16, it says that when we are taking the Lord's Supper, there is a present vertical, it uses the word koinonia, meaning fellowship, participation, communion. There's this 
present vertical fellowship or participation with the body and blood of Christ in heaven. And um, uh, I, I love how the Belgic, you know, as you read, how Christ communicates himself to us and all his benefits. Uh, that's how he nourishes us. That's how he feeds us. That's how he strengthens our faith. Uh, and so we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. It's a spiritual presence of Christ. It's not physical in the way that a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran would understand the Lord's Supper. But it is a spiritual presence of the risen Christ as the Spirit brings us up to heaven to feast upon Christ uh, by faith. And um, I just think that that's, that emphasis is missing. Mm-hmm. And, and also the way in which God bestows nourishing grace to us. Mm-hmm. Um, God bestows grace to us in very ordinary ways through word, sacraments, uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Those are the ways in which he conveys all of his benefits himself to us. That's how he strengthens and nourishes us. Um, those are very ordinary things. Um, and I think that that is just kind of absent in many Baptistic uh, mindsets and a baptistic piety it, it's missing um, where um, many have the idea that well Christ is just you know he's maxed out with me all the time whether I'm at church whether I'm taking the supper whether I'm hearing the word whether I'm doing whatever it's just maxed out all the time mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. there's no there's no special time of the sacred there's mm-hmm. no special time then of well now I'm with the body of Christ mm-hmm taking the, 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 the bread and wine, now I'm hearing the word preached, or something like that, where um, in the Reformed world, we, uh, you know, our, our Reformed piety revolves you know, qu- quite largely around the ordinary means of grace as Christ feeds us very ordinarily with word and sacrament. And those are the things that we look to, and those are the places that we go to be strengthened and, and to be nourished in our faith. Um, and so I think that's... That's uh, missing as well. Um, Seems like there's very little place for mystery also. Is that fair to say? I think because so. Because there's that lack of a mm-hmm. category for sacred and something unique. There's maybe a, a place where the Eastern understanding of sacraments as mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, that we want to say that there is something very mysterious going on. How, how exactly are we eating Christ's body and drinking his blood mm-hmm. by the Holy Spirit through faith? I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I don't really care. As Calvin said, I'd rather experience it than understand it. Right. And even as the Belgic says, like, this is beyond our comprehension. Right, right, um, right. So, yeah, it's something that we cannot comprehend. And actually, I was reading one Baptist author, and he was describing the Reformed view, and he said, it just doesn't make sense. Mm. Like, he couldn't, like, rationalize it out. Right. And it, there, there was mystery there. He was not comfortable with that mystery. But again, I think that's how, how the Bible presents it. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. When you really dig into that text, that is a massive text. It's speaking about a present reality that's happening when you take the Lord's Supper. It's not just remembering the cross or thinking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, though we do those things, but it is, there's something happening right now, you know, as you're taking. So, yeah, just just missing, I think. Yeah, I like to speak about one of the differences here in general is the difference between looking at a photo album I think that kind of captures a bit of the Baptistic impulse mm-hmm. to make um, to make it a, a mere memory of something. Mm-hmm. You look at a, a, a photo album, and you might have a heartwarming moment of memory and recollection, and maybe that's the kind of heartwarming moment that you might have within that context. 
But the, the photo album is very different than communing with the person in the photo, person to person, face to face, right? Everyone knows that. And you might look at a photo album of a loved one who's you know overseas in the military, and so you're thinking about them coming back in the future, but there's not that present thing going on. And so I think that's, that's the kind of thing that you're getting at here in terms of that we want to affirm that Christ is there at the table. We are there with Christ. The Spirit has accomplished the mystery, and we don't really know how that works, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a great, I think, encouragement to us week after week to have that uh, assurance, isn't it? Yeah, that's helpful. So in the Baptist view, Lord's Supper is a photo album of a loved one that we miss. In the Reformed view, it's actually going and visiting that mm-hmm. loved one. Yeah, yeah. Well, we hope that this stuff is uh, helpful for you. Uh, thanks for joining us again this week at the uh, Cincy Reformed Podcast. Find our other episodes at cincyreformed.org. And uh, check out our church that sponsors this, westsidereformed.org. Again, until next week, uh, I'm Pastor Zach, and I'm here with Pastor Brandon. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.